John chapter 2. I don't know what got her hold of Pastor Tosin, all those things she was saying just now. John chapter 2, begin from verse 1. This morning we're going to speak on Jesus at Canaan of Galilee. Amen. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, God, that you open the ears of our understanding. Let our hearts be open to receive the engrafted word which you are going to speak to us in a moment. We thank you for the power and the presence of your spirit. We bless you and we honor you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. John chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Go on. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Man, I wonder, those guys were drinking quite heavily. They drank the house up. Uh, some of you guys in this room have been known to be like that. When you go to parties, people have to watch out for you, man, because you're going to drink it all up. <laughs> but anyway, they had a problem. A man, they ran out of wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's just like Nike. Just do it. Verse 6. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Verse 10. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. And so now let's just go into the message. So we see this setting that it took place in Cana of Galilee, a small village. Actually, the village of Nathanael that Jesus encountered in the previous chapter. Chapter 1 closed with Jesus' encounter with Nathanael. So in this chapter 2 now, there is a wedding. And I just wonder for those of you who are in marketing or public relations, if you are to market a product, or perhaps you are in a, you know you have a powerful healing ministry, God has spoken to you, you are sure of your ability and capacity to deliver, where would you choose to be your launching place? How would you launch this product? How would you launch your ministry? What city would you choose? New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, where? Because what we are reading here in this passage is Jesus' initial 
public launch of his ministry. He's setting a precedent in this appearance that would literally set the course for his ministry. So I don't want it to be lost on us, the setting he has chosen. If you and I were doing this today, maybe we'll choose a different setting. Maybe it'll be a high school uh, football game. Maybe it'll be in a, in a church setting like this. Maybe it'll be in a home setting. Whatever the setting is, I want you to know that Jesus was very deliberate and intentional. This was not just an accident. Number one, he chose this setting to confirm what his father did in Genesis when his father made his very public appearance in marrying Adam and Eve. Because Jesus would later on let us know in John chapter 5 that what I see my father do is what I do. I have no other agenda. And I think it's important for you and I, as followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, that we will also pattern our lifestyle after what we see him do. So he came on his scene immediately, remember? Prior to this, in Matthew chapter 3, when he was baptized, and we mentioned this last week, the heavens opened, and there was an announcement from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was the last public appearance before this moment when it went to the king of Galilee. So it is interesting that the last time he walked to Jordan to be baptized, his father made an announcement. And now, the next thing he does is confirm his father's appointment. I only live to please my father. What I see my father do, that's what I'm doing. My father showed up at Adam and Eve's wedding, confirmed them, blessed them, and so I am here at his wedding. You follow that so far? Second thing you must recognize, there is no marriage or wedding that can ever fully have joy without the presence of Jesus. You can go to all the bookstores you want, listen to all the tapes you want, Buy books on self-help, how to please your husband, how to please your wife, how to please your children. All of, the, all of those things are good. But they are only good within the context of the presence of Jesus. Yeah. You remove Jesus, all the self-help books don't work. They, say, say with me, say they don't work. Say except for Jesus. They don't work. Amen. Amen. So Jesus' appearance was to confirm the essentiality of any wedding or marriage that will ever experience happiness. His presence must be there. So I just want to say to us husbands, to us wives, and to us young people who contemplate marriage, don't contemplate to the point of living out Jesus. Always go back to the pattern. What is he saying? What is he doing? How is he doing it? It may not make sense to you in the short run. You may not even like what you are hearing or seeing in the short run. But I'm telling you, it's not ancient of days for nothing. <laughs> it's the beginning and the ending. It's the first and the last. The alpha and the omega and everything in between. 
So whether we like what we are hearing or not, whether we like what we're seeing or not, what I'm saying to us is, let's just resolve to trust him. Because this institution of marriage began with him. It was his idea, not ours. Don't ever forget that. And so, is there, in verse 3 of John chapter 2, we are told that they ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother came to him and said, listen, honey, son, do something. Help us out here. We are, we are out. Help us out. And his response was initially, hey, what's my business in this? My hour has not come. And there's a lot to say about that, but I don't want to, I, I, I want to stick with what I want to uh, uh, get across this morning. When Jesus was saying that my hour is not now, it's not, it's not now. There's, there's a reason for which he was saying that. That has to do with his glorification, his crucifixion. And he's saying, this is not the time. This is not the time. But you must admire Mary's courage. And there's a lot for me and you to learn from that. Even though Mary did not hear what she needed or wanted to hear, she did not allow her expectation to be disappointed. Jesus did not give her an assurance. Okay, I'm going to do something. Okay, I'm going to fix the problem. He just said to her, my eye is not, it's not yet. What's, what's this got to do with me? Mary turned away and said to the servants, whatever I says to you, do it. The point being, when we go to God in prayer, we, like the book of Habakkuk, must set ourselves in such a way that we have expectation that something will happen as a result of our praying. Many of us approach God in prayer with no expectation. We speak the words, but we really don't expect him to do anything. That was the case with Zechariah, the priest of God, in the book of Luke, chapter 2, or chapter 1, not chapter 1, who ministered before God, has been praying for a child, and finally when the angel of God came to give him an answer, the Bible said he was so afraid. In other words, he was just going through the motion of praying without any expectation. And I'm praying that we will not be like that in this house where we are asking God to do things and when God begins to move, we are afraid. Remember the book of Acts? Peter was in prison and the church was praying for him. And when Peter was released and delivered as a result of the prayers of the saint, he showed up at the door and knocked on the door and the Bible said they opened the door song and did not believe. Amen? So Mary went to Jesus. Jesus did not give her, give him what he was looking for, what she was actually looking for, but she said, whatsoever he says to you guys, do it. All right, verse 6. I'm moving closer now. Now there was said there six water pots. Six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews Containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So let me, let me, let's just begin to break that down. Six water pots of stone. According to the manner of the purification of the Jews. And Jesus gave the instruction to the servants, fill the water pots to the brim. They did. Draw out and serve to the, to the master or the governor of the feast. They did. And as they did that, the man tasted it. Wine. Woo! 
Just like that. Now, I know there are a lot of controversy in the church. What kind of wine was this? Was it alcoholic wine? Was it unfermented wine? And on and on. People spitting hairs. Was it MD 2020? What was it? Was it Johnny Walker? Was, I mean, quit it. Cut to the chase. There is no such thing as unfermented wine. If it's wine, it's wine. If it's grape juice, it'll be grape juice. But the Bible did not call it grape juice. But in our religious mind, we are trying to help God. They say, well, you know, really, this is not really God. You need to understand. Let's help you present it. We know what you mean, so let's help you present it. Because there are some people here that's given over to drinking too much, and therefore, if you tell them it's, it's unfamiliar wine, they know that they can't go out and drink. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly how we should relate to drinking. The Bible is very clear on that. So, I don't want anybody to leave this place and say, Pastor, give me license to go and drink. No. If you, if you need a license, you're already doing it. It's not on me. I am just sticking to the text. Okay? Jesus met a need. He saved the family from embarrassment. Because back in the day, to run out of wine is like having a wedding where you run out of food. It's a major embarrassment to the entire clan. And so in order to save them, from that embarrassment, he met that need. Now, he could have given them grape. He could have given them any number of things, even water. But I want you to understand that in Jesus turning the water to wine, he went beyond the normal call of duty. In other words, he provided for them a luxury that they really could not afford. And the way you should see that is, the Bible says, God gives me and you good things to enjoy. Yes. He just does not give you things. If he gave us things, we'll be grateful. Yeah. But it goes beyond giving us things to give us good things to enjoy. Hallelujah. So you must understand the mindset of God that he gives me and you good things to enjoy. But beyond that, he supplied them with such quantity of wine beyond their wildest expectation or imagination. Because we are told there were six water pots of stone there. Each contained about 30 gallons. That would make it 180 gallons. Even for you guys that drink so much. 180 gallons would have been a whole lot to drown in one day. Amen? So it goes beyond their expectation to give them something beyond what they were looking for and in great abundance. And thereby, seal the day for the family, gave them joy. But is that all Jesus was doing in this wedding? No. So there are two ways to see what happened at Cana. Number one, he met the immediate need of the family. Saved them from embarrassment. And that same God that did that for them that day will save your family from embarrassment. God will deliver you from whatever the enemy has posed in your way to embarrass you, to bring shut it to you, to cut short your joy. In the name of Jesus. Yeah. He will deliver you for that. 
But I don't want us to meet the second and very powerful spiritual lesson here. In John chapter 2 verse 6, the Bible says there were six water pots. Water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. This is, this is the point. Every Jew that was in that wedding, based on what we know with the tradition of the Jews and scriptures, there were at least seven different kinds of vessels in Israel and from scriptures. Number one, and I cannot go, I cannot teach all of this now, I have just 30 minutes left, but we have a tape on this, on the vessels of the Lord. Tape was done about maybe 15 years ago, but it's still very accurate. Seven vessels. Number one, the vessel of honor. Number two, the vessel of dishonor. Number three, a chosen vessel. Acts 9.15, that's Saul or Paul. Number four, a clean vessel. Isaiah 66, verse 20. Number five, uh, the vessel of mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 23. Number six, the vessels of wrath. Romans 9, 22. And lastly, the broken vessel. Psalms 31, verse 12. Now, I didn't describe all of those verses because there's just so much to it. A broken vessel is a person who's broken due to the dealings of God in their lives at that moment. Verses of wrath, very simple, men and women who are taken to disobedience. Verses of dishonor, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, that in every house there are many vessels. Verses of gold and silver, wood and hay. Amen? And then, of course, talks about vessel of uh, honor there. Vessel of uh, clean vessel. Okay, okay, let, let me just back up. Let me give you guys a little hint on all of these things because I just don't want to run, run them through you and not tell you. Vessel of mercy is a vessel that was placed in the city center where any stranger that came to the city will have access to drinking water. It was a service available to all strangers coming to town at the city center. Amen? Chosen vessel, that's, that's Paul. This is a vessel that God specially made with his own personal hand signature and set aside for a specific, incredible use for the future. Clean vessels. Okay, let me, let me, vessel of honor. Vessel of honor is a, is a vessel that's placed in every house in Israel. Every house has a vessel of honor. What does vessel of honor do? Vessel of honor is where they receive the water to quench their thirst and also to clean their hands and feet because of traveling among the dust, in the dust. Vessel of honor. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So, vessel of dishonor is a vessel of honor that's been used over time. And because of usage over time, it's worn out, the lip is cracked and broken, and therefore, no longer serves to give water to quench thirst, but it's now used as a garbage collection. You do not want to be a vessel of dishonor. Okay? Vessel of wrath, very self-explanatory. I pray that nobody here this morning is a vessel of wrath. 
and then of course broken vessels all of us at different times are broken vessels before the Lord and God has a way of remedying these vessels so I went through them quickly so John chapter 6 six water pots what is this water pot it's a vessel of honor it's a vessel of honor it's in the house and the main reason for which it is there is to give water to quench the thirst. Mr. Adenika, welcome. It's good to have you. Is to have water to quench the thirst of the individuals, but at the same time to wash the hands and the feet of everyone that was at the, at the wedding. Please don't miss what I'm about to share. This is, I believe, the second important reason for which Jesus went to this wedding. So he gets in there, they run out of wine, he's looking at all these folks, and according to Jewish tradition, all of them should have felt clean because they would have washed their hands and their feet at the vessel of honor when they came in. Is that correct? Because that was the way everybody did things in Israel. You come in, you wash your feet, wash your hands. So Jesus is looking at this irony of event. People sitting, having the mindset that they are clean because they have washed their hands and their feet and is having a problem with it. The law of Moses required that they did those things. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 11 and 12. Quickly, please. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Thank you. Look at what it says. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. That just shall live by faith, all these folks who are sitting in this room and thinking they are justified because they fulfilled the law of Moses, they've cleaned their hands and washed their feet. Are you kidding me? No, you are not justified. Because justification is only going to be by faith. In fact, verse 10, let me go to verse 10 first. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So all these people who is doing washing by hands and washing by feet, they are actually under a curse. Go back to verse 12 now. Thank you. Yet, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. We know from James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you are keeping the law and you keep everything and you miss one, you're guilty of everything. So the point here is, Jews, it is futility. It is exercise in futility to depend on the washing with the water to wash your hands and your feet and claim to be clean. Now, go with me to, go with my, to, to the overhead, uh, to the slides for me. I'm going to break it down, but I want to be very slow and deliberate. The slides. We were told there were six water pots of stone. Is that correct? Yes. 
Let's do some Bible study here. You know, most theologians will tell you, tell you that six is the number of mine. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Be careful what you hear. I know what you read and know. I've said it myself before. So I'm not saying that to put anybody down. I've actually made that statement. But I'm learning and I understand that we must only validate what we say with scriptures, not any other thing. Only scriptures. Because if six is the number of man, we say that because man was made on the sixth day. That's true. But he also made cattle on the sixth day. He also made cattle. So we cannot just say six is the number of man because man was made on the sixth day. But we don't bear that out. It sounds good. He will preach. But it's not Bible. It's not Bible. I don't care who says it. Whether I said it or anybody said it, it's not valid. Six. The number six and God. Number one. It's important for me to break it down like this so you can understand what Jesus did. Genesis 1 31. Then God saw everything he had made and he did it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Next slide. Genesis 2 verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So the first thing we say about number, about number six is six is the days. Is the, six represents the number of days that God worked. Are you hearing me? Six represents the number of days that God worked. Next slide. God did all the work of creation in what? Six days. The number six is used here to signify the total period that God worked in creation. Can you argue with that? Is that Bible? Good. So six relative to God describes how many days God worked in creation. Next slide. Now, the number six and man. I just showed you number six and God, right? Now, look at number six and man. Exodus 20 verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Next slide. The number six was designated the length of time that God assigned himself to work in creation and it is also the length of time he assigned to man to work in this world. So when you see six, what a portion, there are more scriptures, I can't go through all of them, time is chasing me. When you see the six in scriptures, immediately it conjures the idea of work. Next slide. The number six is illustrative of work. And I just showed you scriptures. I didn't just come up with this. I showed you the scriptures. So Jesus saying six water pots of stone immediately is saying I know how much work you guys had to do in order to fulfill the purification of the Jews. 
I know how much labor. Do you know how much work it had to take them to go and fetch water? You remember the lady, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well? Just one bucket. I, I don't know how many miles she had to walk to go fetch it and come back. So with six water pots, to have enough water, 180 gallons, to satisfy all that were at the wedding, I can only imagine how much work that took. But not only so, even though they had to work to be purified, the point is, at the end of the day, their effort did not really meet the demand of God's righteousness. He didn't meet it. For all have seen and come short of the glory. It doesn't matter how much they worked. It doesn't matter how much water they fetched. Jesus knew, I know, you know now, that no man by himself can save himself. Are you hearing me? It was all an effort in futility. Now, under the law, yeah, they did it, and it was fine. But remember, Jesus was born under the law, lived under the law, but he came to show us not only the law, but grace. He came to show us a better way of living. He came to show us a better way of pleasing God. A better way of walking with God. So he sat down there, watched all of this. Ah! And he said, wow. Effort in fertility. And I don't know who you are here today. And you think through your hard work, you will please God. It's a lie. You think through what you do, what you don't do, you can get win God's favor. It's not true. It's not possible. No matter how well you try, no matter how well intentioned you, 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 you may be, no, it's not going to work. Because the just shall live by faith. The just shall only live by faith. In every area of your living, you cannot please your husband by your works. You cannot please your wife by your works. You cannot please your children by your works. You cannot please your bosses by your works. No, somebody else will always do better than you. There will be another man that looks more handsome than you to your wife. There will be another woman that will lose. There will be somebody else that can do more for, for, your, for your spouse than you can ever do. Hear me well. Hear me well. They look good, smell good, make more money, can do a lot many things that you cannot do. So what I'm saying to you is, it's not a matter of what you do or don't do. It's a matter of trusting God and walking by faith. Period. I know Revelation is having a heart attack over there. God will deliver her. But, so number six is Elos 24 work. Now, I'll give you the next slide. Now, let's talk about the significance of the six water pots to the Jews. The Jews consider themselves ceremonially unclean if they did not wash before eating. Discussion scriptures are there. Next slide. We understand six signifying work. Is that correct? We understand what the water pots of purifying meant for the Jews. The water pots for the Jews meant the water in the pots on the vessel was the means of purification. Okay, here comes Jesus. Why, Jesus, are you going to turn water into wine? He was about to illustrate that true purification 
of the Jews and of us today do not come through many washes. You can wash all you want. It will never make you right with God. They were living a lie. They believed a lie. And Jesus was here to set it straight. Next slide. Oh, no, no, no. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Okay, you went ahead of me. Thank you. Thank you. True purification will be through the drinking of wine. Oh my God. I know many of you are going to run out of here this morning. You're going to go and get a bottle. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know some of you are going to just say, man, I need to go get my bottle. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> True purification will be through the drinking of wine. Now we go to some scriptures. I know Pierre is beaming from years to year. <laughs> Next scripture. Let's break it down. Wine is often used in scriptures to symbolize what? Blood. 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 Are you getting the picture yet? No, I don't think you're getting it. Okay, let's read the scripture. Matthew chapter 26. Let me just read it very quickly. We should read scriptures now. Before you leave here and go to Walmart and pick up a bottle of wine. You're going to say, yeah, I want to be, I want to be purified. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting purified, all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. When they lock you up in jail, man, for driving on that DUI, nobody's, here, nobody, nobody's coming to get you. <laughs> Matthew 26, verse 27. Now, this is the communion. Jesus is doing it here. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Verse 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. Are you getting the picture? Mark chapter let me go back to my slide here. Thank you Jesus. So don't go, don't go pick up that bottle. Not so quickly. Mark oh no, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 53. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink its blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is what? Drink indeed. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now do you see what Jesus is doing? They were looking for wine, but it's giving a real reason for which they must have it. It's not just about wine, just be, be having joy. It's important you should have joy. But he turned the water into wine to symbolize for them. You think you have purification in how you wash your hands and wash your feet. But I come to give you purification not by the water of washing, but by the blood that I'm about to shed for you. And it is by drinking of this blood or wine, as the case was, that you truly have a part of me and have eternal life. So it's not just going to a wedding as a one-day occasion. No. He was there for that one day to give him joy, yes, but also to symbolize what they can have in him and through him on a long term. Are you following me? So what's the takeaway for us? Because when the governor of the feast tasted this wine, he said, come on. What? Usually men will give the best and then everything that comes after will be worse. But you save the best for the last. You save the best for the last, TJ. You've saved the best for the last. You have saved the best for the last. Go and look at God. Go and look at the profile of God all through the scriptures. He always saves the best for the last. There was Jacob and there was Esau. Well, let's, let's even back up. There was Isaac and Ishmael. Who was first? Ishmael. Who was last? Isaac. Who became first? Isaac. There was Esau, there was Jacob. Who was first? Esau. Who came last? Jacob. Who became first? Jacob. Ah, you guys, are you guys awake yet? There was Manasseh, there was Ephraim. Who was first? Manasseh. Who was second? Ephraim. Who became first? Ephraim. Then Jesus came and told us, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What is he saying? When you were born in your natural flesh, that's the first birth. But when you become born again, that's the second birth. The first birth is first. The second birth is second. But which one is greater? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So what I'm saying to you is, regardless of where you are right now, what you are seeing in your life this moment, you must understand that God is a God that makes changes. And he knows what he's doing. Your latter days shall be greater than your beginning. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Yes. It shall be greater. Because that's the way God does things. Now, very quickly, let me just give you six quick things. I won't expand on this here. I will do that on, on Wednesday night. Because of time. Number one. Personal application. Number one. Whenever you face a situation or a problem, a circumstance, a hardship, and take cue from what happened at this wedding, 
The first miracle Jesus did was not to raise the dead. He does not open blind eyes. In fact, the first miracle he did was not a life and death matter. There's a reason for that. Because all of us in this room right now may not have life and death issues. But we have everyday issues that's yet pressing on us and Jesus wants you to know no matter how trivial, no matter how little, no matter how small those issues are, it's there for you. It's there for you. You will not always need him from life, life or death, but whatever you need him from is there for you. So the first thing is, whatever you are faced with, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus meaning acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. There's a slide for that, you guys. Number two. Number two. When I say turn to Jesus, I mean resolve that Jesus has the answer. Resolve that. Before you go to the doctor, before you go to your credit union, before you go to what before you go to anywhere else, just resolve that Jesus is my first recourse. Unfortunately, as believers, we don't think like that. We don't think like that. We think Jesus is the it's not the first result, it's always the last result. We've done everything else. Everything has failed. And say, okay, Jesus, oh, you're there? Oh, son of God. I, did, I, I forgot. And then we go to him. No, he doesn't want that. First recourse. Train yourself and your mind to always have Jesus as first recourse. Number two, number two, talk to Jesus. Talk to him. Talk to him. Open your mouth, have a conversation with him. Father, this is what's happening in my, in my life. This is what I'm faced with. This decision I have to make. What do you have to say about this? What's your opinion in this situation? Talk to him. Number three, very important. Trust Jesus for whatever resolution he's going to bring to the table. Turn to him, talk to him, and then trust him. Trust him. You have to trust him. Trust him. Mary trusted him. Mary turned to him, he talked to him, she talked to him, and walked away and said, well, whatever she says, just do it. I know, I know he's going to tell you something, just do it. Number four, number four, follow his instructions. Whatever instructions he gives you, follow it. Notice the instructions he gave them. Number one, fill the water pots to the brim. Not just halfway. I said to young, this young, younger generation, Please, we need to take time to be men and women, young people, of details. 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 Don't, don't assume. If somebody says, fill it to the brim, don't just do it halfway and think it's brim. No. No. Not just the younger generation. Even for us adults. The big men and women. Follow details. Follow minute details. It's important. Jesus said, fill it up. Not, not three-quarter ways, not halfway. Fill it up completely. They did not argue with him. They didn't ask him, okay, after we've done that, what are we going to do next? No. Just follow. The steps of a good man are ordered of God. Amen. Not the master plans. You don't need a master plan. You need a daily plan. Daily plan. The steps of a good man. Okay, God, I've done this. I'm going to wait. Why? Why is it the steps? Because he wants you to pay attention to him. 
If he gives you the plan, you will not pay attention to the details. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. So I've done step one. What do I do next? You notice you have to ask that question. And he's waiting for you to ask because he wants to give the answer. But he's inviting you to engage. Step two, draw out and take to the garden of the feast. Notice how they followed the instruction. They did not say where they made it. I mean, we just put water there. Are you kidding me? I'm going to now take this water and go and tell the governor of the feast that this is wine? They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Total blind obedience. Blind obedience. Willing to be ridiculed if God don't show up. Amen. And for many of us, our reputation is more important than God's ability. And therefore, we can't see God at work. Because we are so concerned. Suppose God don't do it. So, it's not on me. It's on God. It's on God. And if I miss it, yeah, I missed it. I'll try again tomorrow. Amen. Last point. Ah, point number five. No, no last. Patience. Patience. Hebrews 10, 36. For you have the need of what? Patience. That after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Patience. Many of us don't like to have that. Me inclusive. I want it all done last week. All last week. But God will put us in certain situations to where you have to wait. You have to wait. Be patient, he says. After you have done the will of God, it's no longer on you. This is the most critical moment in the manifestation of God's promise towards us. Our ability to do what he's asked us to do and just wait on him. And don't take things into our own hand and say, God, you are not moving quick enough. And we go and produce Ishmael. That's going to create problems for generations to come. Patience. Lastly, this is actually a result of having done everything. Only the servants and Mary knew about the miracle. Hello? You and I are reading it now. We saw a miracle. Those guys at the feast, did they know? No. No. They just thought maybe the groom went and bought more wine and brought it. They had no idea what had happened. No idea whatsoever. They were just what? Consumption folks. They were consumers. That's all they did. They just drank. They drank it up. They had no idea. The point being, it is only when you participate with God that you know what God is doing. You will never know how beautiful Jesus is until you come inside of him and become a part of him. And so as we receive communion this morning, take into consideration everything we've, we've said. Your justification is not as a matter of what you do or don't do. No. Your just, justification is based on the shedding of the blood of Jesus for the remission of our sins. So as you partake of communion in a moment, remember that Jesus has paid the price in full for you and I to become connected with him. And I must, I must not sit down or close without mentioning to you 
the other reason for which Jesus actually went to this wedding. He understood that many people will meet or encounter at the wedding, many of them will never show up in the synagogue service. That was his, his part of doing marketplace ministry. Of the 132 of Jesus' appearances in all the scriptures, 122 of them were within the context of the marketplace. 120 out of 132. Think about that. That's a bunch. So he went to a place where he knew he would reach majority of the people who are not religious. And so like Jesus, you also are a vessel of honor. You're a vessel of honor because what? God has placed eternal life in you that is looking for you to dispense to others in the marketplace. Amen? Amen. If you're here this morning and you're still trying to justify yourself by the things you do, you take pride in your achievements. You take pride in your self-effort. You take pride in all the things you've accomplished and all the credentials you have, my friend, it will only come short of the glory and you expose yourself to living under a curse. The Bible says, the just shall live by faith. Jesus is given an opportunity for you to live by faith by accepting the sacrifice you already made on your behalf to the shedding of his blood. So if that is you, stop trying so hard and start trusting so much. Stop trying and start trusting. Amen. Trust Amen. in what Jesus has already made available. And so yes. Father, I thank you right now thank you, in the name of Jesus. Yes.